Turn to First uh, Thessalonians, if you would please, First Thessalonians chapter 1, and uh, hold your place there. For a few moments, we're going to stand together and read in just a moment. I wanted to just ask a question and then go back and do a little bit of background before we uh, read this passage of Scripture and then jump into it together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 7 through 10. Let me ask you a question before we read this passage of Scripture. Why do you come to church? I would imagine there are different answers that different people would give. Well, my mom made me. My wife, my husband made me. It's what's expected of me. Some of those different things, but I really believe that across the board, the reason that you're in church, or for those of you who are at home and you wish you were here, you would say something like this, that you are getting something at church that you won't get anyplace else. You're not going to get it from the news. You're not going to get it from social media. And that's exactly what happened to this little group of believers in the city of Thessalonica. Paul was grateful that he was able to bring the word, but he was even more grateful for how they had received the word. Again, just a little bit of history here about how Paul came to be in Thessalonica. If you'll remember, the second missionary journey is underway. Paul is traveling. He basically is traveling through what is modern-day Turkey. He wants to, he's in the southern part, and he wants to turn and go north, but the Lord won't let him do so. So he goes to the west, and he ends up on the western coast of Turkey, uh, modern-day Turkey, that is, not from Asia, but it's a place called Mysia, and he ends up in this town called Troas. And then he has a vision. And there's a man in, in the vision who is in Macedonia, in Greece, and he's saying, please come over and help us. And if you'll remember from last week, we said, and this is in Acts chapter 16, this is exactly how Paul interpreted that. I I, I just want to throw this in. He could have said, well, he's asking for us to come over and help him. I wonder if he means with their social problems. I wonder if he means come over and help us with their economic problems or maybe with their political problems. But he automatically assumed something because this was the calling on Paul's life. When Paul had seen the vision, he said, we immediately set out to go there, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And he was there for three weeks and he preached the gospel to them. And out of that grew this church that we're going to discover we have the last two weeks, we've been walking through the 10 changes, the 10 marks. He was only there for three weeks. And, And again, I will say this, they had no other resources other than the Word of God, the Old Testament that, that, that Paul had given to them. And the change was so dramatic. 
We've gone through six of those changes, and we will go through the remaining four today. So with that, would you please stand with me, and let's look at the Word of God. First Thess, chapter 1, beginning with verse 7. Now, I'll go back and remind you that in verse 3, if you're enumerating, if this is the first time here for you, uh, we've been doing this for the last several weeks. This is the fourth sermon in this series now, and so we've gone through the, the first the, the first sermon about the changes, the marks of true Christianity, of true conversion, were in verse 3. Your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness or endurance of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then last week we considered verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction. Um, and uh, then also with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then we come to verse 7, and we have the remaining marks, the remaining changes that had come upon this little group of believers. Let's start with verse 7. So that, he says, now he's going back, you receive the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and that is what enabled you so that you became imitators of us, excuse me, so that you became an example to all the believers. Now watch this, and he mentions it twice, in Macedonia and in Achaia. Macedonia was that general region where Thessalonica was, but all the way down into Achaia where Paul was at that time in Corinth. For not only, here's Mark number 8, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, literally trumpeted. In Macedonia and Achaia, he says it again, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that, this is amazing. Here, this little church of, of new Christians that hadn't been in the faith that long, and Paul's going to make the most stunning statement so that we have no need to say anything. This was their job. This was their work as apostles. We don't have need to say anything because the word has gone forth from you. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how here is the ninth mark now. You turned and watch the order. We're going to come back to this. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And then the last thing, comes back to this at the end of every chapter in this book, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Father, thank you for your word and how it speaks to us so clearly. I pray that even as you did with Lydia, and she's the one that it says it so so openly about, but, but through everyone who has heard and responded to the word, you opened her heart. God, open our hearts to receive what you have for us from your word, and we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You see it there on your outline. I hope you have enough room to write if you're a writer. And let's jump in. Verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, Paul had previously commended them, watch this, for imitating him and Silas and Timothy and the Lord. 
But now he turns that. You not only imitated us, but you took that. You took that example, and you became a living example for believers. Now, this goes outside the church, obviously, but he is saying you became, in, in those other regions, those other churches where I went, and you became an example for other believers throughout the entire region. Now, let me just say this to you. Look at me and, and listen to this. Because sometimes we read the word and this can be intimidating and you ask yourself, how can I be an example? I want you to get something right now. He is talking about excellence. He's not talking about perfection. Heard a definition of excellence one time and I think it's very, very good. Excellence, listen, is simply doing the common uncommonly well. So that's what he was after. And in fact, he'll come back to that in chapter 4, verse 1. He commends them again for their excellence, what you are doing, what you are doing and living out this thing called the Christian life. You need to, and the English, the, the, the ESV kind of loses it. I like the King James or the NASB. It says, excel still more. There's more for you to do. Now, now you've got to see this. This had been a group of, I'm going to use the word ordinary, ordinary idol worshipers, I-D-O-L, not idol like lazy, idol worshiping pagans who within three weeks had had, now watch this because we, we don't often hear about this except maybe some places overseas when people come back with missionary reports, we seem to lag here. They had an absolute, complete, and seismic, I'm going to use that word. That's a great word, isn't it? Seismic. We understand that word here in Oklahoma. They had a seismic lifestyle shift. This little outpost of Christians, this church, this was a church, not individual Christians running loose. This was a church became a model for other little outposts churches in the region. Philippi, Berea, we know these churches exist because of the scriptures. Athens, there was a little church in that big huge city of Athens that Paul had planted. Corinth and even in Centuria. There's not a letter, but it sure was that there was a church. Now, what were they an example of? Probably several things, but I'm going to stay with the text here. We, we read it a minute ago. I pointed it out. They were an example, get this, of joy in extreme suffering, okay? They had become Christians within three weeks. Radical lifestyle change. I mentioned this last week. How do you think that affected them in their culture? When they didn't run with their idol-worshiping friends anymore when they didn't go to the idol-worshiping temples anymore? How do you think that affected them? Do you, know, you know one of the things they said about Christians in these days? They call them, by the way, this is fake news. Fake news is not new. Okay? They call the Christians then atheists. What? Atheists. You know why? Because they stopped worshiping 
this multitude of Greek and Roman gods. You don't worship the gods anymore. So you're atheists. And they were ridiculed and they were maligned and they suffered. You know, what is suffering? Jan and I were talking about that this last week. Basically, if you could boil suffering down, what is suffering? Come on, what is suffering? It's loss, pain. Yeah, it's, pain would be one of those things. But if you could just boil it down to one thing, I think you could boil it down to loss. Look at this. The writer of the Hebrews, some say we don't know who that is. We were talking about that in our ABF class today. At least two of us believe it's the Apostle Paul. And here's what he said to another group, another group of little believers. He said, you endured hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Now watch this. I've got more to say about this. I, I, I can't believe that he wrote this except that it was true. What would happen in our culture today if somebody came to confiscate your property because you're a Christian? Could that happen? It could happen in any culture. Kick you out of the country? That's happening. That's happening in, in places around the world today. But look at the ad. This is why they were so exemplary. These other little churches, they were going to be going through the same thing. And they looked at the Thessalonian Christians. They said, you joyful, joyfully accepted. I can see maybe, maybe accepting with a little bit of belly aching. Lashing out at those who are plundering. Or I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to lock my door and go get my Glock 43. And my Mossberg 500. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Okay, students, you're, if this, this little church heritage is kind of like, it's a lot bigger. We've got a lot more resources. But let's say that we wanted to be an example to other little outposts of Christians. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do it? You do it the same way they did it. And we're going to see this when they turned to God from idols because they saw something in God through the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing else could compare. The only way you can joyfully accept the plundering of your property is to find something better. The supreme value of knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew that they had a better possession and an enduring one. Sometimes we think that only is talking about heaven. I think it's talking about the entire Christian life. They had found something far, far better. Now, let me just stop and say a couple of things about our current situation. Last week, I used the imagery of our little slice of time. And it is, it's a little slice of time. Some people think it's the ultimate slice of time. We've had other slices of crises in our in our country and in our world and that kind of thing. I'm not trying to downplay it, but I, I want you to look at how, by the way, we, through a series of events, we haven't had TV in about the last three weeks, and it's been a blessing. It, it really has. We, we just find ourselves feeling a lot 
better uh, about life and everything without the constant bombardment of, of all of the stuff that's going on. But the destruction seems to have now been targeted. Okay, do you understand what I mean? I'm talking about our culture. This is way bigger than our culture. But at least in our culture, it, you know the destruction's been targeted when they go after Eskimo pies. Change the name. Microaggression. But now they're going after images of the faith. Watch out. Be careful. That even in that, that's not a subtle form of idolatry. So how do we respond biblically? How do we accept that? What I said a minute ago, we know that we have something far better than that. How did the Apostle Paul deal with everything? Let let me show you what the Apostle Paul said about himself. Now, if you don't know, Paul had a pedigree a mile long. He he was a Jew of Jews. You read about it earlier in Philippians chapter 3, but but there's even more. You can read in other places. This guy was, was, I I, I mean, he he wasn't even married so he could devote all of his time to serving God and other things like, like that. I mean, he had everything religiously that you could have that would make him somebody, all right? And here's what he said about all of those things. You know what those things had become? You do know what they had become, don't you? Idols, religious idols. He said, whatsoever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He had found something better. Indeed, I found, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Here is one of the greatest needs of the hour, and and I've been talking about it last week was about this. This week is going to be more about this, but I I think given the whole context of what Paul's writing to the church at at Thessalonica, one of the greatest needs of the hour is endurance. We need to stay the course. Once putting our hand to the plow, we need not to look back. We need endurance, and there are promises connected with that, okay? I, I was reading, uh, rereading a, a, an excellent little book, and in fact, was so struck by it that I ordered the entire volume. Uh, John Piper, several years ago, wrote a series called The, so- the Swans Are Not Silent. And I happened to have the little book about three men and about their, their incredible lives of endurance. It's called, in fact, the title of this little book is called The Roots of Endurance. And, and it's about three men. It's about John Newton. And it's about uh, Charles Simeon, a name maybe that you don't know. That probably the most impactful for me was the story of the pastor named Charles Simeon and William Wilberforce. And, and, and what I was struck by was he, he made this. I hope I can communicate what he said. But he talked about this need for endurance, and he said there's a difference. Now, get this. Try to follow. There's a difference between being a coronary Christian and being an adrenal Christian. Did I say that right for some of you medical people? Coronary and adrenal. Now, you know what the, 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 adrenal, the, the adrenal gland does, don't you? It produces adrenaline. 
And what does adrenaline enable us to do? It helps us to, to, to get over the hump when, we, when we're faced with something, fight or flight. The, the adrenal, adrenal gland starts pumping out the adrenaline and it gets us over the hump. It's what I need a, a big dose of every Sunday morning. And I usually get it with a couple of cups of coffee thrown in. But it's adrenaline. But I can tell you something about adrenaline. It doesn't last. And I've got to watch it because on Monday morning I crash. That's what you do after adrenaline. It gets pumped and then you crash. And he said what we need is not adrenaline Christians who get hyped up for the minute and then they crash. And this is a season of crashing, I think, for a lot of Christians. I really feel like that a lot of Christians, you've been through one crisis, the COVID crisis. Now we're in this other crisis and we're getting ready to go into still another crisis with the next COVID thing. And I think a lot of Christians, I, I don't know that I'm talking to any today, I think a lot of Christians are just exhausted. Piper says we need coronary Christians, the coronary, the heart. The heart just does its job day after day, minute by minute. It just keeps on beating. You may not know it's there, but it keeps serving us through the bad times and the good times, through the sad times and the happy times, the good days and the bad days. That, that's being an example. And this church was an example of being coronary Christians in tough situations. Second thing, verse 8. Oh, I love this. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. The Greek word. I'm not, I, I don't do that to impress you. But I just love the, the way that these slide into our, our vocabulary. Ex echo. Ex echo. It's echoed from you. This word, and another way that it's used is trumpeted forth. The word of the Lord is sounded forth from you. What's the word of the Lord? What is it? Right here. It's the gospel. And, and this is in the context of this. The word of the Lord is the gospel. And the gospel is a lot more than what a lot of people in churches think that it is. I really wish you could have been in our ABF class today because we talked about this. And we talked about the fact that in a lot, I think in a lot of places, and watch out for the terminology we use with our children, we've almost made the gospel a transactional kind of thing. God's going to give you this if you make the transaction and you put the faith in and then you, you become a Christian, you're saved from hell, and then you be good. And that is not what the gospel is all about. You see, God created us for fellowship with him, but from birth, because of the sin that we've inherited, we have rebelled against him. And God is just. We come to this at the end. His wrath is is upon those who rebel against him. But he's also loving and merciful. He sent his own son to die in the place of sinners, to pay the penalty for our sin. And on the third day, to be raised from the dead and then to ascend into heaven. And all who embrace him through repentance and faith 
turn from their rebellion, turn to God, not only will be saved, but they are being saved because they have been saved. It's organic. Words like conversion and born again. Now, folks, these people and us too, you cannot be saved apart from hearing the word and understanding the word. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in to give you understanding. And then out of that, you believe this gospel. And the word came to them and revealed Jesus Christ and they were radically transformed and their lives showed it that Jesus had changed them. The word went forth, not just in spoken word, but in the lives that they lived. Now, folks, let's get this down. This book is primarily so that we can be introduced to Jesus Christ and the great issue in life, even for this little slice of time, is man's relationship with God. And I hear a lot of things about solving a lot of problems totally divorced from the gospel. The reason the apostle Paul did what he did, the reason they did what they did was because they were thinking biblically. What does the Bible say? Paul wasn't driven by pragmatism. Get me saved and give, give me seven verses on how to do this and how to do that. He was prompted by the message of reconciliation. He said as much, 2 Corinthians, God through Christ reconciled us to himself. That's number one, and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that ministry? What is the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is a lot bigger than just our little slice here in this country. It's the world not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I'm going to tell you something. It's, it's really, it, it's amazing that in this current environment, I have heard some evangelical preachers and leaders get angry at the suggestion that the gospel is the solution. I've heard things like, stand up. Say something. I, I, I wonder sometimes if we really believe the gospel is sufficient. Did the early Christians stand up? Did they? They stood up in facing overwhelming odds. This is back up in Acts chapter 6, right out of the chute. This is well before the missionaries' journeys or even the conversion of the apostle Paul. When Peter and John were told, you, you stop this, stop preaching this gospel. And they said, look guys, we can't. We can't but speak of what we have seen and heard. And that would be their message. That is the job of the church for 2,000 years. It has been the church, the church's primary vocation. 
and it will continue to be. Now, I, I, I go back, and I was just doing some historical studies about our own country and the things that we have faced. We've, we've had over 100 wars in this country. Do you realize that? We, we, we've got this little slice of time that is, that is incredible. But I, I would say, looking at all of the years, worldwide, I'm talking about worldwide, probably the 20th century, I'm talking about the 1900s, was arguably one of the worst. Now, we are 20 years into the 21st century, and by everything that I can see, this is not going to be an easy time to be a Christian. It's not meant to be easy. And we are not left helpless. When the gospel, listen to me, when the gospel comes to a person and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside that brand new creation, everything changes. Now, if your churchianity doesn't view Christianity like that, then perhaps we need to go back to the very basics and talk about the gospel initially for you. The gospel changes everything. I, I think I quoted you last week or a couple of weeks ago, you know, the, the old saying that, well, you Christians are so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. You've heard that, haven't you? And C.S. Lewis came back and said, no, no, sometimes we're so earthly, uh, we're so earthly minded, we're of no heavenly good. And he said, it is precisely the Christians, get this, that were heavenly minded, that were grounded firmly in doctrine that did the most good for our world. And this book that I was reading this last week about William Wilberforce shows the reality of that. If you, if you are truly converted, if you're truly born again, and you're not just a person who, you, you, this is your view of Christianity, you're saved from hell, you're in, and you're just trying to be good, so you, you go to church and you do some good things, but, but if you are a true born-again believer, and things have begun to change, which they have if you're truly born again, then I'm going to tell you something. You will be a better spouse. You will be a better friend. You'll be a better student. Just go down the line, you'll be a better worker. You'll be a better boss. And I thank God for out of the church that John Newton, who was a coach for William Wilberforce, said, I'm going to keep my nose to the grindstone of what the church is about, and that is about the gospel. But out of that will come the, Wilbur, the William Wilberforces who will change things in this world. And I thank God. I, I'm just thinking from out of this church, for example, he was the interim pastor before me. Does anybody remember a guy by the name of James Langford? 
I am so grateful that he is applying his Christianity and his vocation. Now, by the way, I am glad that there are people all over this room today. You're applying the lived-out Christianity to your vocation, whatever it is. But I'm grateful for James Langford. I'm grateful for Nicole Miller. I'm grateful for those who have gone into that arena to affect change. Everything changes. Except for the calling of the church, it's always to proclaim the gospel, and wherever that is central, the gospel I'm talking about, the other things, the peripheral things, God will use the church to influence those. But if we focus on the peripheral things, inevitably, they will become central. I read this last week from one of my my favorite pastors to listen to. His name is Alistair Begg. And he, he's a good preacher by his own right, but I just love listening to his accent. I wish I could speak that Scottish accent. I, I'm not even, well, I did try and it failed miserably. <laughs> I just love listening to him, but he, he said something last week. I'll give him the credit because I thought, wow, this is really good. Why? He said, why is America as ungodly as it is? Because, now I added this phrase. This wasn't his, but I added it. It's insane, right? What's going on around us is, it looks like complete insanity. Do you know why? Listen, because sin is moral insanity. And then he added this. The reason America is as ungodly as it is is because there are not enough genuine Christians. How do you get more Christians? By preaching the issues of the day? No, he said, by preaching the gospel. And by Christians keeping the gospel and the cross central in every walk of life. The gospel really is the answer for everything. Number nine, the second part of it, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. I said, look at the order. It's very important. The word of the gospel set down, listen to this, in a very spiritual world. You do realize that that was a very spiritual place. It's just the wrong spirit. I, you know, I, I, I've wondered because I've, I've gotten involved in missions and many of you have gotten involved in missions and most of the places that we've gone before, the gospel has already been there at least in seed form. Here's Paul going into places where there was no gospel, but there was a lot of spirituality. When he went into Athens, it said his spirit was stirred because he looked around. He said, you guys got, I don't know how many gods. In fact, you've got so many gods, you've even got an idol so you don't leave anybody out to the unnamed God. It's a culture saturated with idolatry. Idolatry is, was entrenched as a religion. It was a part of their life. It was their worldview. This is how they grew up. Their children went to the pagan temples and they worshiped idols and they learned all of the, the things. I, I, I don't know at what age, but all of the debauchery that went with that. By the way, how, is there anybody here that came out of idolatry 
to become a Christian? Some of you raised your hands partway. Who said that? Who said all of us? All of us. Don't you remember I shared with you Romans 125 last week? All of us came out of idolatry. There, there are only two religions in the world. Everyone's religious. Everyone is religious. They either worship the creature in some form or they worship the creator. By the way, here, here's, here's the bottom line. In the end, my idolatry centers in me. An idol, a graven image, or any of those other things, they're only things that I can control to get what I want out of life. And you've got, you've got to understand this about us and about them. Turning from idols is not easy. Because they promise you security and meaning. We spend our time and our energy on them. They consume our thinking. They become objects of our worships. If, if we just happen to have a time where we're daydreaming, we're, we're automatically carried away to our idols and without a second thought. So the picture here, let, let's go back to the, to, the, to the verse where they turned in, in verse 9, chapter 1 of 1 Thess. Again, the order is important. They first turned to God. I think this is the way sometimes Christians approach evangelism. You've got all these other things going on in your life. Just give Jesus a try. See if he works for you. I tell you, that's just not going to work for you. No, you see the incredible beauty of Jesus Christ revealed as the Son of God who came to die on the cross for our sins. And it says they turned to God and immediately what happened? They dropped their idols. It's almost like they had lived a life without realizing it of eating garbage and then someone one day offered them a steak dinner and when they turned to the steak dinner they never wanted to go back to the garbage again they were converted they turned to God and in Jesus Christ they found him so satisfying for every need of their soul and their life that they dropped their idols. Now, I, again, I can't, I can't even hardly imagine. We, I've been on the mission field, and some of you have too, but you picture three guys, three guys going into a pagan city like this with only the Word of God. That's all they've got. I mean, really, when you look at it like that, what hope did they have of changing that world that they went into. Here's what hope they had. They preached the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Men and women under that hearing saw such beauty in the Savior that they turned to him and abandoned their idols. And by the way, do you remember? And this is kind of a famous quote. It comes exactly from what's happening in Thessalonica. When the riot broke out and Paul had to leave town, what was the accusation that the people in the town 
the city. It was a pretty significant city. What did they say about Paul and his company preaching the gospel? Anybody remember? They've turned the world, the world, upside down. And because of that, these people turned from what was false to what was true. I love this, where he says to the living and the true God. Their idols were false. And by the way, their idols are dead. They turned to the living God. Now, perhaps in the daily battles after that, Paul left town after three weeks. It was a period of time before he showed up in Corinth. Then they came, Timothy and perhaps Silas came with a report that, man, these Christians are doing well. But did they ever get tired? What did they do when they were tempted to give up and go back to their idols? Verse 10. Let me just paraphrase it. They kept their eyes on the prize. Here's how we're able to do it. We, we keep looking because we know that one of these days there's going to be another trumpet that's going to sound. And the skies are going to split apart. And our Savior who has saved us from our sins and who is saving us and making us more like Himself, He is coming from heaven. This Jesus whom God raised from the dead, this very Jesus and none else, and then... Paul makes the most startling statement, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Folks, we all share in that promise. Look at this. Later on in, in 2 Thessalonians, I, maybe someday I'll get there and we'll, we'll go through that. But, but look at what he says in chapter 1. He's piggybacking on this statement out of chapter 1, verse Verse 10 in 1 Thessalonians, God will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. That's a great promise. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, he fills in a little bit more in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. Now watch out. Please watch out. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of God. Didn't say those that are in church or outside of church. Those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Now watch your heart Paul is simply giving a sobering reality of what is to come. No spirit-led Christian should take delight or glee in the wrath that is coming upon those who do not believe and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people outside the church who will malign this kind of statement right here and this kind of preaching right here. Is, oh yeah, you Christians are just, you're rubbing your hands. You can't wait till God comes back and makes them all crispy critters. That's what you're waiting for. No, no, no. We grieve with the heart of God who says he takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked, 
but he will bring his wrath. They have no hope outside of Jesus, and neither did we until the Lord revealed to us the gospel and we trusted in Jesus Christ. I read from the very beginning when I got up here that, and I keep thinking of that old rock and roll song, forgive me, there's a whole lot of shaking going on. There really is. But we have hope in the midst of our shaking. The, th the things that are made from man will be shaken. Everything created will be shaken. But there's one thing that will not be shaken, and that is the eternal kingdom that we will receive. So, could I say it from, who's the oldest person in here today? George Gilbert. Where are you, George? You came in. I think you're the oldest in here today. From the oldest to who's the youngest in here today? Listen, this is an incredible promise to all of us who know and who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say to the oldest, to George and to the youngest, keep your hand on the plow. Don't look back. There are plenty of people endure till the end which is really not the end. It's really a wonderful, glorious beginning. Let me just say this. I was talking to my son last weekend right after another report of a former... I, I, I'll read what the title of an article. I looked him up. His name is John Steingard. I, I, have, I have to confess I've never heard of him or the band he was in, Hawk Nelson. Now, he has to be famous. It said it in the article. And because he has 27,000 followers on Instagram. But he came out and said, I've been a Christian. I'm no longer a Christian. How do we respond to that? First of all, we grieve. We pray for that guy. He's gone to his friends. By the way, he gave the litany of why he had decided to become an atheist. Grown up as a PK. Grown up in a preacher's home. Wow, watch it, PKs. And he had done all the preacher things. He got involved in leading music and lived in the Christian bubble and all the rest of that. It goes down the line and then finally he started looking at, he had questions about the Bible and, and, and questions that really have been solved years ago, like apparent contradictions and the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. You know, those are tired arguments, but he bought into them. And then you know what he did? He went to his friends who shared the like opinions. That's getting into these echo chambers. And they agreed with him and said, yeah, yeah, you can believe whatever you want to and you're okay. And so he's a self-proclaimed atheist. And do you know what the thing was that was missing? The thing that was missing from all that I read? It was even, not even the name of Jesus. The reality is he had never had, at least as far as we can tell from his own testimony, a life 
changing salvation experience with the living God through Jesus Christ. So when I tell you students and others up to George Gilbert and all the rest around this room, for me to run with endurance the race that is set before, how do we do it? We keep our eyes on Jesus who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And he had joy too to endure the cross, keeping his eyes on the prize. Father, I thank you for uh, the way that you speak to us in your word. At least you spoke to me through this word. And I thank you how that we can know the salvation of Jesus Christ. It doesn't cost a cent to us. It costs you everything in the giving of your son. And so, Lord, I want to thank you now for those who have heard. I pray that for those of us who know you, that we would be stirred to continue to look to the, to the gospel and that we would, we would live out the implications of the gospel in our own lives every day. And for anyone who's here today and maybe you open their eyes, their heart, and realize, they realize that they have been religious but never a genuine Christian. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Show them Jesus living and crucified for our sins, buried and raised again on the third day and coming again. And we will thank you for that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.